I downloaded the app and then I was suddenly like, you know, taken aback by the user experience at the time. I was like, wow, I am going to be putting in my credit card or debit card on this app. They didn't have cash at that time. So you could only uh, pay with, with, a, with a debit card or credit card. And not only that, but the sign-up process required you to put in a credit card to, in order to sign up. So I just didn't have the confidence. But anyways, a couple months, uh, a couple months later, I heard that Kareem had, had closed a $10 million round. And I was like, wow, this company, the one that I, the, the app looks so, so bad. And, and, and what, what was all about? What was this all about? So I was actually kind of, um, I was actually kind of taken aback by, they must be doing something right. So at that time I re-downloaded back the app again and being the, the, the hacker that I was, I just kind of basically, I decompiled the, their mobile app and started noticing that there was a couple of like open APIs that they hadn't closed. So I started sniffing APIs and I ended up, kind of uh, figuring out how many users they had. That was the voice of Wa'ad Nafa, partner at Raw Adventures. I am your host, Ali Zweil, and this is the Startups Arabia podcast, where you learn about the Arab startups ecosystem from the best founders, investors, and operators in the region. My guest today is Wa'ad Nafa, partner at Raw Adventures. Well is a computer engineer, a serial entrepreneur, and a YC alumnus who has co-founded various startups in the Silicon Valley and Middle East. He was one of the early employees of Karim and held roles including VP of Product Management and VP of Platform Super App Business Unit until Uber's acquisition for $3.1 billion. Well is a techie at heart and has built technology products used by tens of millions of users worldwide. He is currently a general partner at Raw Adventures, a VC firm investing in early stage startups in the region, and is passionate about building tech capacity and fostering entrepreneurship in the MENA region. Enjoy this excellent, wide ranging discussion with Well. Welcome to the Startups Arabia podcast. My guest today is Wael Nefa, partner at Raw Adventures. Uh, I first got introduced to Wael's name on the very first episode I recorded, which was actually ended up being the second one to be published with Tarek Fahim. And he told me a very interesting story that I, I hope to go over from the founder's point of view uh, with Wael uh, later on in the podcast. And also, uh, Wael is someone whose products I use a lot, a product that he, like, contributed significantly in making Karim I, I use and have used a lot. And so, uh, and of course, Karim is what it is in the startup ecosystem. So in addition to his work at Ride Ventures, we're going to have a really interesting conversation about a lot of topics. Welcome, Well. Thank you for having me, Ali. Great to be here. Great. Um, all right. So maybe we can just start, if you can tell me in, in a few minutes, uh, how you came to end up in this world of startups? Yeah, so I, uh, I graduated, um, uh, I, I studied engineering and graduated uh, as a computer engineering uh, you know, enthusiast from University of Waterloo. I uh, went and worked in the Silicon Valley for many years. I had a dual specialization in both um, software engineering as well as digital integrated hardware design. And I was working in the semiconductor industry for many years in the Valley. And at one point, I, I got the startup itch and I kind of went through a phase of various different startups that I had 
uh, worked on. Some of them failed. Some of them uh, kind of went through a mini exit. And I ended up uh, kind of along the way, um, kind of learning the full end to end of being an entrepreneur. Uh, initially, I was just an engineer building products. And then there's other aspects of running the business that I had to be exposed to, uh, building your growth strategy, uh, you know, go to market, uh, your business model. And, and all of this I learned by fire uh, being in the middle of it. Um, I ended up uh, in 2014 uh, working on a startup that got admitted into uh, Y Combinator. Uh, at that time, it was the first company from the Middle East that had gotten into Y Combinator. So um, there was a lot of kind of uh, learnings along the way. Uh, in 2015, uh, that company was uh, you know, shut down and uh, I ended up joining uh, Kareem. Kareem had probably been operating now for three years when I joined them. They were still kind of very early on in their in their journey, and uh, I had product and seeing it from a relatively early, uh, but not necessarily from the very uh, start, uh, and and the journey to seeing it scale to the to the to the point that it reached uh, up until uh, post acquisition as well, and uh, that that was really kind of my exposure into the startup ecosystem as a whole. Great. And um, now uh, you're at uh, Riot Ventures. Uh, as we know, it's a Saudi-based uh, venture fund. So can you tell us a bit about uh, Riot Ventures, what, what the thesis is, what it invests in? Riot Ventures, we, we invest in early-stage startups. Um, the majority of our investments are targeting seed. And exceptionally, we do pre-seed and exceptionally a little bit later than that. But our bread and butter entry point sweet spot is uh, seed. Uh, an early stage. Um, we we invest across the MENA region, um, so the, the top three markets uh, being you know Saudi, Egypt, and UAE. Um, we we don't. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that we are. Uh, we ha- we have a particular sector focus. We're sector agnostic, but we maybe avoid uh, you know asset heavy, extremely asset heavy, or hardware based uh, companies. But other than that, we're open to anything. Um, and we've been operating, um, so Raid was, was started uh, in 2016. And we're currently uh, in the, in the, in the uh, thir- second fund and about to launch our third fund, inshallah. Sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, you, you were on the operator side in a big tech company, you know, when you moved to Raid. Uh, what was like the biggest change of outlook or mindset that you had to make when you moved from one side of the table to the other? As an operator, you're used to kind of rolling up your sleeves and getting into the weeds. Uh, on the investor side, a lot of times you're watching, you're only giving advice to people and they can take it or leave it. Um, it was initially hard for me to to kind of anticipate how working in a VC would be like because I was very much used to kind of jumping in and, and, and working a lot. But I think over the years, you, 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 you trade off the trade-off between depth and breadth uh, at Ra'id um, and seeing a whole bunch of different startups, founders from all different sectors, backgrounds. Uh, you see a lot of breadth of business models. You see a lot of breadth on, in, in a lot of areas and you sacrifice you know, depth, uh, you know, your ability to work so deeply with all of the founders. Now, that being said, I think the operator angle is definitely something startup founders feel when they speak with me. And I think also the rest of the founders, most of them, all of them have been former operators as well. So I think um, 
it's one of the things that when I engage with the founders myself, um, we can actually have the deep conversations and they, they appreciate that as well. And that credibility that I've been in your shoes before, I know what, what it feels like. Um, when, I, when, when we discuss um, questions of scale or challenges that come with scale, um, hopefully I'm speaking from a position of I've seen um, what worked and didn't work when we were working on Kareem and, and I, I've been in your shoes or at least even if I wasn't working on that particular area, I can probably connect you with someone who, who, who knows uh, how to do that. So I think this, this is something that the founders appreciate and I think it, I would say it gives me a different type of relationship when we speak to founders regardless of whether we end up investing in them, in them or not. I'm sure. And and do you like personally have uh, a preference or a focus area that you like to uh, focus on or when you're looking for investments as a partner? Um, not particularly. I mean, if I look at some of the investments that I led, uh, some of them were in fintech, some of them were B2B marketplaces, some of them were, you know, SaaS company. So, so there's a very different set of things that I ended up uh, investing in. I think one of the things uh, when you're looking at early stage investment, you're obviously doing a lot of checks and, and you know, your diligence on the market and business model and whatnot. But disproportionately, uh, you, you end up focusing a lot on the founder and the intrinsics of the founder. Is this a founder you're willing to back? And a lot of my effort is also spent on getting to know the founders deeply and what moves them, what drives them. Um, and this forms the largest part of the, of the decision-making, um, but definitely is not the only thing. Interesting. And, and no geographic focus, right, for you personally? Not in, not in particular. Um, okay. I've, I mean, I, I've, because I know the Egypt market very well, because I have a lot of my connections there, because I know the ecosystem well, I, I generally end up being uh, close to that uh, market and sector and the founders there. So I would say maybe that's uh, uh, something that, uh, that I get involved in a lot more, um, but not exclusively. We have had my partners have, have worked on deals and led deals uh, out of Egypt as well. Um, so, and then I, because I live in Dubai, I also know the UAE ecosystem here as well. So I guess th those, you know, there's not a particular setup in a way that I only look at Egypt or only look at UAE or Saudi, but it ends up because of the, my background and where I'm living, that, that's how it naturally evolves. Got it. Another aspect like of this operator versus VC dichotomy is is sitting on boards. You're, you're now on the boards of two companies, Grinta and Tagger. Yeah, so what is like different from being a board director who is involved in a business somehow more than the average like uh, hands-off investor and an operator? Yeah, I mean, board discussions, ideally, they're focused on a lot of strategic aspects of the company. Uh, it's not about tactical day-to-day -day things. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a conversation we can have at any time afterwards. And it's not the, it's, it's not the norm. So a lot of times, really, uh, the composition of the board, the type of preparation that's had up front, what is the best conversation to engage with with your board members? I think a lot of founders... Uh, get a while for them to understand, you know, because you're always available to talk to the founders. So they can always call me up and say, well, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about it? And then that's fine. That's a lot of tactical day-to-day -day things. But then how do you shift that conversation and have the most 
fruitful conversation on a board. And, and, and I think a lot of founders um, underutilize the board, in, in my opinion. Um, I don't know, maybe because of what they've heard happens uh, in the market, maybe maybe uh, there there's always a little bit of, uh, of disappointment of what value they can get. But I honestly think that if the founders spend a lot of time really thinking about what are the quality conversations that we should have or what are the conversations that we can have later, there's a lot of value to be extracted. Um, and it really sets uh, helps the company think through th- angles uh, uh, that they haven't thought about in their business. Uh, a lot of times just our learnings from what one portfolio company did versus another, what worked for them, what didn't, um, what are common challenges that are there. Um, you know, a lot of times founders think that they have very, very unique challenges and definitely there are a portion of it that is very unique to a particular company, but more often than not, these are, um, similar problems, but maybe reflected in a, in a slightly different flavor that they can benefit from the wisdom of the breadth that some of their board members have seen or could give them advice on. And, and what do you think is the, like, what are the attributes of the best board directors? What are they like? Because it's always a balance, isn't it? Yeah, to be honest, I mean, I haven't had a massive experience on various different boards, but the, the two boards that I'm on, I think the interactions between all the board members are very positive. It's very constructive. But I think I think a lot of times um, a good board member is a board member that doesn't necessarily get panicked by anything they, they see. Because companies, especially early stage, they're going to go through a lot of ups and downs and a lot of challenges. And, and the, the most the the most um, challenging conversations are ones where there where people are always jumpy about oh this happened oh my god and there's a there's a there's a disproportionately over over uh, there's a disproportionate overreaction sometimes but I, I think whenever whenever the conversations are all calm and it, it it is really about not necessarily nitpicking but also how do you drive the conversation towards a very constructive kind of outcome or new realizations for the founder and really understanding the personality of the founders because founder personalities are different. How I convince one founder in our portfolio about an idea that I want them to really think about, I would go about it very differently from, from one to another based on how I know they are and, and, and how they're more likely to, 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 to receive the kind of the, the feedback I'm giving or even how to engage in the conversation regardless of they would convince me or, or, or otherwise. So anyways, I, I think um, to, to, to go back to the question about what, what makes a good board composition. I think the diversity of ideas is, is, is an important one. I think, um, you know, definitely um, uh, a shift away from, from theory to the to hands-on advice. Uh, people have heard about, oh, you need to do a layoff, for example, now. Tough decision. Okay, give me advice of how best to execute on a layoff. Let's talk about that. Um, we need to accelerate our growth faster. Okay, Obviously, the founder has to go figure that out. But what are what are things that we need to think about? So the practical aspect of a lot of these types of conversations, and the more that we can get a bit more uh, away from the theory into uh, hands-on advice or uh, strategy that is not something that they could have just read in a book, um, makes makes the makes the conversation a lot more real. Right. And I guess there's like the CEO has a role in, in getting the most out of the board as well, right? It is it is their primary role. It's not our role to, to figure out what the right conversation is. 
we will drive towards a better conversation if we feel that what is put on there is not right, but it's primarily the founder's objective. They need to think very carefully. They know what does Wael have to offer to the table? What do the other board members have to offer on the table? How can I best engage in a set of, in an agenda that gets me to, 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 to answer the, the, the questions that I need to answer? Uh, and and how, how do we go about con- um, having a conversation all that? It is definitely the founder's uh, only... I would say they're solely accountable for that and where there's still support. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, okay, I mean, moving like away from that board uh, director aspect and uh, focusing on raw adventures and how it makes decisions. Um, do you guys, when you're making an investment decision, are, are you some some companies are like consensus driven, some are majority driven, some are like the partner. Each partner gets just decides. How do you guys go about it? So for our fund two, uh, it was a unanimous. It had to be a unanimous yes, which means uh, you had to have wow. it, the bar was quite high. Um, there's obviously pros and cons of a decision that by consensus, especially when you have many people, four people. But I think overall, it it uh, the, the, one of the big advantages of it is it it really forces um, conversations. I I know all of my partners well. I understand. Um, when I look at a, a, a company, I understand very quickly what are my top concerns that I want to get answered before I say yes on this company, and and, and what are the things that I'm more excited about that I think are pros. And and I have to any partner who's leading a deal has to kind of understand all of the other partners. What are the top questions that they're going to ask in the IC? What are the IC members going to think about? And it really forces us to have a lot of very uh, close conversations to do that. Obviously, it comes with cons because then. Sometimes uh, decisions by consensus are not always the best. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, there has to be a balance between uh, between the different opinions. So we're exploring uh, potentially different ways of doing it for future funds. But as of fund two, it is uh, consensus. Right. And I've heard like uh, some funds that have unanimous vote that, that have a system, a joker system where you have one, each partner has one or two times where they can like, just put their joker on the table and say, you know, uh, my vote is enough. And uh, um, and um, it's actually the, it, it really drives uh, deep belief in startups. It just shows that this is a startup you really believe in. And it uh, and it's a, usually a non-consensus bet. So if in the positive case, it's, it's usually a very good success. Uh, but of course it has risks. Anyway, yeah, um, we, we don't have that for uh, for our fund too. It, it has yeah. it is always consensus. But we are for our future fund fund three. We are exploring um, um, single trigger mechanisms as well, but f- with limitations on ticket sizes and 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 how many times and whatnot. It's something we're exploring for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, for so far, it's been unanimous all the way. Right. Okay. Uh... And uh, all right, so you know there there are many ways to get proprietary deal flow. Um, I've noticed you're not the most active person on social media, you know, and, and these things. So how do you get quality deal flow? I mean, social media is one of the ways to get yourself out there. It's not the only way. I think this the VC game is is primarily a reputation game, and the reputation your reputation can be built through various aspects. It, it you know. A lot of it has to do with what founders say about you to other founders, right? And I would say um, 
even more importantly that some people might ignore is what do founders that you chose to say no to, what would they say about you to other founders that are looking to raise money? And I think the most important thing is, you know, this, um, you know, being down to earth, being very responsive to the founders, being genuine uh, whenever, you know, you're giving them the reason. One of the things that we have at Ra Adventures, for example, is, again, we're not perfect, but we strive that every, every uh, inbound email that comes to us, there always is a response back, even if it's a no. And uh, whenever there's a pass, we give them a pass reason. And it's not one of those hand wavy reasons like, oh, you're a bit too early, whatever. We try to give them what are the things that we're, we're concerned about. And we, we say it very humbly and we, and, and many times, you know, we, we say things like we very likely could be wrong. And many times founders have proved us wrong, but this is what we think so far. Prove us wrong and we, let's have the conversation again in a couple of months or whatnot. So I think humility in, in, is there approachability, just, you know, they want to feel that they're dealing with someone who's a human being that they can actually, you know, have a long-term relationship with. Because when you invest in a company, it is very much a long-term relationship until there's an exit of some sort. And then finally, um, part of it is also how well we prepare up front. Um, a lot of times our internal team and, and our, in, on our investment team, we work a lot on just kind of researching and understanding domains and sectors and kind of developing our own internal thesis about kind of different uh, business models or sectors or whatnot. And uh, the better prepared you are, the more homework you do um, to understand uh, what is happening in that domain, uh, the better you are able to ask smarter questions whenever the founders are pitching to you and whenever you're going through the, the process with them. And believe it or not, founders can tell. You know, there are the, you know, the, the dumb questions, the stereotypical questions, tell me this, tell me that, what about this, what about that, that, you know, you can close your eyes and almost expect every VC is going to ask. And they're important questions. You know, if that, you need to ask those. But if the conversation does not go beyond these standard questions, that it doesn't matter if this is a company that is a SaaS software versus a company that, you know, sells, uh, you know, space equipment hardware, you're always asking the same questions because fine, it's important questions to ask. But if the, the whole conversation only revolves around those, it becomes a very shallow conversations. Founders can tell whenever you really understand the business model, you really understand the challenges, and you really understand what they're doing, and you're actually asking engaging questions around that. Uh, and even if the answer is no, they're like, wow, this is a really smart investor. So to the extent we can get ourselves to be smarter about certain areas before we sit down with the founders or before we end up talk, uh, discussing, um, it's one of the things that you know people say, wow, these are really smart guys. And then also... Um, post-investment for the people who now you've invested in, it's how available are you really to them? You know, a lot of times people talk about dumb money and smart money. We, we'd like to think that we're very smart money and we will help you with a lot more than, than just the money, the check that we give you. And how strong of an NPS score they would give you on uh, how much you've helped them in the things that matter to them. Uh, and made an impact is 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 something that will really help your reputation. Uh, I'm not very active on social media. I consume a lot of social media, but most of the founders who who I've interacted with, I'd like to think left with an extremely positive uh, interaction experience. Even if my answers to them were sorry, we're unable to invest now. And, and the, the real the real reality of the situation is, I say more no's than yeses <laughs> because we ultimately invest in twenty ish portfolio companies per fund 
but on a per year basis, we might speak to over a thousand um, in one way of shape or form. So, um, yeah, th there are definitely more no's than yeses. Yeah, and and you know, it's it's a it's a more long term strategy maybe, but I think it's much more effective and and uh, really builds uh, for the long term and and for stronger people don't under yeah. Founders. I think a lot of people underestimate um, how responding quickly is probably the biggest indicator of how your reputation is going to be. And I don't mean responding quickly um, in the sense that you're always there 24-7 uh, with on WhatsApp, but it's, it's just very simply the founder wants to know, is this a yes or is this a no, right? Are you feeling positive about it or not? And a lot of times I hear from founders that May, some VCs kind of string them along for so long before and they keep giving them the hope that yeah, it's looking good, it's looking good and then it's looking likely and we're preparing the term sheets now or X or Y and then the end it ends up being a no for something that they could have, you could have asked me that question like from day one, what, what, how did this question come so late? So really kind of, you know, just being very transparent with the founder with what, what your thinking process is at any moment in time and just giving them a, a timely response with, with that with whatever direction you're leaning towards and uh, is, 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 is something that a lot of people underestimate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, Adventure is, is a company that it has a very impressive portfolio. You know, some of the real big rounds uh, in the region have been raised by some of by your portfolio companies. I'm going to miss some of them, you know, but Unifonic, they'll be... Uh, lean Foodix, you know, I, I had to write some of them down, uh, Grinta, etc. So I mean, some great companies, um, and and you seem to really bet big, and and like you you're willing to take a risk uh, on an idea, which 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 I think is good. So how did how do you guys? Is this like a deliberate strategy, or how how did you uh, actually? collect this portfolio and how did you how do you make these bets i mean first of all i think a, a big part of it is tawfiq and I, I don't know how to explain it i mean how do i translate it in english just blessings from from god that we we, we 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 worked hard and we were blessed with good results so this is definitely one but i, I think we do work hard and really um really understanding how the founders are and, and just kind of our persona, our understanding of the personas of the founders and which are the founders we really want to bet on. Um, whenever we have conviction on a, on a founder and a business model and a, and a team, uh, we definitely double down. We have a history of doubling down on, on what we think are very strong and, and you know, our internal team, our close follow-up with the founders, uh, really understanding their business post-investment really gives us light and, and sheds light into which are the ones that are performing to what our expectations is and helps us to double down. So it, it's not one thing that we do, but it's a combination of many things. The other thing is, you know, our proprietary deal flow, our ability to, to reach deals before, before others helps, gives us the optionality to actually choose first. And when we, when we form conviction faster on a particular company or founder, um, because we've, we've been engaging with that founder for much longer and earlier, um, it gives us an edge in, 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 in first dibs, let's say. Uh, and then finally, also our ability to research a domain and sector uh, prior 
and for months before, because we're generally trying to look into areas um, and understand them deeply, helps us make a decision faster whenever we do see a company in that area, in that sector that we were like, wow, we were, this was on our radar, not necessarily this company, but this sector was on our radar or this problem statement that they're, that they're solving is one that we think is large in the region. And this is what we think uh, is going to be the challenge in that area. This is what we think is going to be the opportunity. And then when we sit with the founder, we already know what questions to ask and helps us make a decision faster. So all of these things are small silver, a combination of many, many lead bullets. No, there's no silver bullet there, but a lot of hard work with a lot of the, the partners and the team members to kind of make sure that we we, we end up uh, picking what we think are going to be the winners and wrap that all in, in, in Allah's blessing and making us choose the right mm -hmm. one. Yep. And, and I mean, it's it's like when, when I go through the portfolio, it's it's you seem to be high conviction investors, uh, like putting an $11.6 million pre-seed round uh, going into that, you know, with Cylinder, for example. I mean, that's, that's a big pre-seed. So it requires someone who's a high conviction, a conviction investor. I was just going to say we didn't put the full eleven point six into yeah, of course, into but... a cylinder, but we we were, we participated in that with with many others. So yeah, we yeah. We, we will we we can't put a eleven point six million dollar <laughs> ticket in one company. <laughs> we're early stage, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah share with us, yes. Yeah, I mean that's an important uh, clarification. Uh, but but it is like an early bet that's quite big, you know, too, because that that that's a big precede. Uh, uh, valuation, uh, so you, you you can't do that even if you're just participating without conviction, and and it kind of brings me to another point, which is you seem to invest as a as a as a fund in companies that might be, shall we say, maybe competing, maybe like intersecting in their target uh, industry, may, uh, even if they're in different geos at the moment. Uh, is that something that? Uh, like is deliberate where you focus on areas that that you know are working across geos or like Sayara and Cylinder, for example, or uh, there there were like a couple that are very that there they that have intersections in the fintech area, for example, things like that. Yeah, I mean, Sayara and Cylinder obviously they're they're from two separate funds, and so I, so I think I think that makes it kind of work. But in general, we don't we don't invest within the same fund into exist into competing companies we, we definitely will form conviction in one that will that will be the winner in that sector in terms of overlap obviously there's a lot of companies that will have a lot of emerging overlaps uh, over time but you know it's it's hard to anticipate what these overlaps will be right um, who would have known that uh, you know Google and Apple will be competing in the in the phone market you know it's just kind of super hard to anticipate in the future what what companies will do. I mean, they're in a similar sectors. So I, I think for us, as long as the the some intersection of overlap of some similar um, area is is not too too large and is, is not something that we even see in the in the short to medium term horizon, that wouldn't be an issue for us. Got it. And okay, I mean, looking on like the other side of the coin, so to speak, uh, from the great like portfolio companies, there are things we can learn from other experiences. So uh, one of your portfolio companies kind of achieved no notoriety uh, after its IPO uh, in a SPAC, which is uh, Swivel. I'm guessing, I mean, you guys made, made an exit, but but things didn't go as expected post-IPO. Do you have any reflections on that uh, uh, experience? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reflections. I think 
you know, our bet is always on the founder. The founder, Mustafa, is a, is a great founder. Um, and, you know, you know, their IPO was unfortunate in the sense that it was at a timing of the market where the market was going through a massive correction. Um, uh, and, and all stocks kind of went down. And, you know, there was a lot of learnings. I think one of the learnings that are there is that it's, it's you know, whenever you're, you're the, the, the two, the, okay, so if you think about it, the two SPACs that happened in the region, one was Swivel and the other one was Anrami. Um, yeah. Um, I think if you ask both of those founders, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure they would tell you that lots of learnings for them. But the reflection is, is if, if you're going to IPO and you're building a, a product, it's, it's important to SPAC in a market or to go public in a market where the retail investor or in general, the investor base, whoever they be, maybe understand your core product on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, you know, people in people in New York or in the US or others don't understand the Enrami product uh, because, okay, they've never used it. They don't know anything about it. So Will is very similar. Uh, they don't experience their product. And it's very hard for them to build conviction on it. If there are investors in the region here, um, it's probably a better approach. Now, again, we're going to talk about timing of market, what are learnings about going public without being profitable. And all of these things are, are obviously great learnings as well. But even simple things like choice of where to, to, to go public is important. And that's why I think the new wave of, of, of companies, some of them in our portfolio that are looking at IPOing, and I know across other um, VCs portfolios who are looking to, to, to go public, a lot of them are really considering either dual listings or, or single listing in, in the local markets with, with the Saudi market being you know, an obvious place to, to, to consider an IPO. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great best practice in it in itself. And uh, so, what have you changed your mind the most about since moving to the venture, like to the venture capitalist side, uh, over the past three to four years? What what are like beliefs you had maybe uh, about running companies or the best startups or something like that that maybe you've changed your mind about, or what's what's a big like thing you learned over the past three to four years moving to the investment side? Um, I mean, there's so many things to reflect on. Um, I, I think to be honest, given that I was an operator and I was an investor uh, or a founder's shoes for so long, I, I understand kind of, I've seen kind of, you know, especially with my journey with Kareem, I've seen what the founders have done. I've seen a, an example of a successful exit. It's not the only way to do things and whatnot. I'm, I'm learning to see other personas and approaches by founders that I think are very successful uh, as well. Um, and there's a lot of commonalities about the traits that they share or the approaches they share, but there's definitely a unique approach uh, to all of them based on the founder's personality, based on the type of business they're in. But that, I think, um, gives me more templates uh, available of success stories that, that could be available. I think that's one of those things that I kind of uh, broaden my my scope and horizon on compared to kind of what I would have thought of before uh, joining Riot. So I think that's one. Changing my mind, I don't have to think about that. Things that I've actually changed my mind or reversed uh, my decision on. But uh, I'm sure there's there's a lot of learnings across the way. I mean, just take simple examples. When we invest in in, in companies as a fund, you're investing in twenty something companies. Your fund returners are going to come from a few of them, a handful of them only. Um, so a lot of times when we make an investment, we look back and say, what, what 
what made this particular one pop? What made this particular one uh, kind of outperform others? Or what made this one fail? And there's a lot of, and you know, when you invest in, in a company, you're, you're, you're going in thinking this is going to be the, this is going to be the fund returner, but it eventually turns out to be not because that's the nature of the business. The majority of them will, will, will not be <laughs> the fund returners. So it requires a lot of honest introspection as to what went wrong and how much of it could we have asked smarter questions about and what, what are the things that are just, there's nothing you could have done, but this is the nature of the game. So Extracting learnings, even even if they're very very small and tiny and very hard to detect, is is an important part to becoming a better and better investor because you need this honest introspection to to, to, to become better. Yeah, I agree. Uh, an interesting it reminds me of something. Uh, an interesting practice that uh, there's this book called Thinking in Bets uh, from a lady who was a champion in poker. Uh, not really our thing here in the region, but. Uh, but one of the things she does is a pre-mortem. So, so if something doesn't work out as, as, as well, like when you're making an investment, you, you write down what you think will go wrong. And then if, it does go, if something does go wrong, if it's not as successful as you want, you can actually look back and see if these are the things you expected or with something else. So it becomes easier to learn as you go. Uh, from these kind of different... Because after the fact, it's probably too late. You, you've already created... Your subconscious has already created this new image of why things didn't go well. But but when you've already held yourself accountable, so to speak, by writing it down beforehand, it, it gives a clear learning kind of outcome, so to speak. I found it Absolutely. quite interesting. I think a lot of times people compare venture investing to poker. I think that's become a popular thing. Yep, uh, yep. It, I, I think it's because, because it's... They share a couple of things in common, right? You have a probabilistic a low probabilistic outcome of success mm -hmm. um, with disproportionately high outcomes for the ones that are successful. So it's kind of like anything that follows that kind of high level model, um, you know, there's definitely some similarities there um, for sure. Yeah. And it, and it requires like making decisions with quickly with low like information, and it requires reading the, the, the other people around the table, understanding their personalities and things like that. So, yeah, it is. It is There's quite a lot relevant. of uncertainty uh, for sure. I do. A lot I of do uncertainty. That book. Lo yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let's change tax. Um, and uh, we'll start kind of where my my story that, that, that I first heard about you. And I'm going to do it in a like, I'm going to paint the movie scene and I want you to go back. Uh, it's like a flashback and, and go back in time to what led to this scene and, and how you felt at the moment. So um, uh, you're the CEO of a company, uh, Hoverchat. It's doing great. You're the first regional founder to be in YC. You know, you had 80,000 downloads in the first three days and, and you know, each one is a one and a half dollar. So, I mean, that's good traction. Things are going great. Things are growing. Uh, and then uh, your main competitor gets WhatsApp gets acquired by Facebook. How do you feel then? You know, how did you get to this stage, and 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 what did you do moving forward? So, so I think okay. Let me to give a brief to the audience. So, the Hover Chat was a messaging application that was meant to kind of uh, deliver kind of a multitasking experience uh, people are doing a lot of things while they chat and we were trying to we were the first to kind of to pioneer this kind of floating bubble 
kind of uh, experience while you are on your mobile phone. Uh, mobile phones, a lot of them are, they, 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 um, they're supposed to be multitasking devices, but it's really one full screen application switched to another full screen application. You're, you're now seeing, um, you know, larger foldables, phones and whatnot that can have more than one screen uh, open at one time. But, you know, for the most part, most people experience a, one, a single full screen app uh, switching experience from one app to the other. And we were trying to kind of build a multitasking experience, which is primarily um, a, a kind of a product innovation and a UX innovation that we were trying to do in the way people experience chatting. And we, we released this and then sometime after we released it, it wasn't too long, I think it was within a month, uh, Facebook uh, didn't, it wasn't about acquiring WhatsApp. It They released kind of on their Facebook Messenger this bubble thing as well, which was kind of eerily similar to what we had just released about a month earlier. And obviously, it definitely looks like they were working on it before, but we were just wondering um, if this was going to kill us or not. And, and uh, it was kind of a scary thing, but, you know, I mean, we eventually ended up dying. Let's just be clear about that. So Hover Chat did not survive. But but in the offset, we we didn't notice a big uh, dip in our in our user base. But I think it was because there was a lot of other experience differences that mattered. I mean, I think a lot of people who really really loved Hover Chat, they loved it for kind of the unique approach, but also that we were doing it with for for the U.S. market is, is a it is a primarily SMS market. Um, and you know, most people weren't on those OTT chat messenger or chat apps at that time, be it WhatsApp or messenger and whatnot, it's still primarily SMS market. And we kind of had built kind of, uh, an experience around that where funny enough, we also kind of, uh, built kind of like an iMessage for, for, for Android type of thing where people who were on hover, hover chat, it was kind of delivered over, over HTTP, uh, rather than eating up your data or your SMS plan. And if you were not, then it would do the both. So, so we kind of pioneered a lot of like cool things that were firsts in that sector. Um, but unfortunately we couldn't compete for, for various other reasons and, and, the, and the company ended up uh, kind of going under. But I think we were very proud of the fact that there was a lot of core messaging experiences that we, we would, we were pretty much the first to do or the first to kind of push the edge on uh, to, to a new level. Great. And that decision is a tough one for, for founders, uh, a very tough one, you know, kind of killing their baby. Um, can you tell us more about how you made the decision? What, what, what drove you uh, across the line? Um, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, you have to be very honest as a founder with uh, in the state of your business. Uh, and you either choose to kind of continuously make your pivots or change or recognize that this is not going to work out. And I think, you know, we were in the social space, social media space in general, be it with messaging or whatever, it's a social application. Um, you know, the really successful ones that are out there are ones that are kind of growing at, you know, virality level kind of month on month growth metrics. And anything short of that ends up being uh, fine. It'll, it'll survive. It'll be, it'll, it'll work, but it, it won't, it won't make a change. Or it won't make a dent in the, in, the, in the market. It will never become that big. So short of kind of, 20, 30% month on month growth for, for these types of things, it's just not going to survive. And, and I, and I think in our case, we were just recognizing that, you know, it got to a point where we weren't able to, to justify, 
uh, or convince ourselves that this can be something big um, without um, uh, given given the ecosystem lock-ins that were there from the big players that were competing in that space. Right. And what was the, I mean, YC at the time was still being managed by Paul Graham. So what was the YC experience? You know, what did you take out of it? What was it like? Yeah, so winter 2014 batch was, I think, uh, the last batch that Paul Graham was still kind of running the show there. Um, I, I still, I, I don't know how it's like now, but a lot of the founders I spoke to since tell me very similar things about it, but similar to what I had experienced. So I presume it's it's still similar and, and, and always evolving and improving uh, along those lines. But I think the most important thing that, the, that I got out of uh, YC was um, uh, an extreme focus on growth and just making progress on your growth on a weekly basis, on a daily basis. It's just a lot of times people think in like, okay, month over month and whatnot. But in the very early stages, the granularity of your uh, obsession on uh, growth and, and identifying product market fit and scaling and, and whatnot is, 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 is on a much more granular basis and needs to be much more frequent. And I think that's kind of like the top thing that was just kind of hammered into our heads all the time is to think about, about that. The second thing is, um, it was really uh, when when founders are you know when they're when they're pitching they're they're used to kind of uh, being in pitch mode and selling mode or sometimes overselling mode, um, and and YC was very good at getting you to cut through all of that noise and just really have a very very honest view on your business. Is this working out? Stop the, all the marketing speak. Stop, speak. Stop all the pitch mode speak. What is actually happening in your business? Are you really convinced that this is a good thing? And what indications do you have? And what KPIs do you have to indicate that? So the the extreme honesty that it kind of uh, forces you to kind of have as a discipline in evaluating your business um, was also a very uh, very important thing that I got out of it. And and sometimes you know founders take uh, uh, negative feedback. Um, about their performance or the, the company because it's your baby, they take it very sensitively and, and they just kind of very quickly teach you to, to kind, of, uh, kind of remove all of the emotions out of it and really honestly evaluate uh, what has been the performance uh, so far and, and what's the state of the business. So I think these two would probably be the most important two uh, things that I never thought I would get out of it. I thought I would get other things out of it, which I'd heard would, were great about Y Combinator. But I think these two were the unique things that I don't think I've heard of any other kind of accelerator program delivered in 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 in, in such a good way as as they have. So it's it's just amazing. Yep, that's why they're so iconic. Huh? Um, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I I'd like to shift gears and talk a, a bit about Karim. Uh, there's so much we can like learn from your experience there. But, uh, you know, first, how did you make the move to Kareem? Because you ended up as director of products first when you joined. Uh, so can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so the funny thing is I, I um, how I came across Kareem, I was in Egypt at that time and I was meeting, uh, I, I lived in Alexandria. I was heading to Cairo on the train and I was supposed to meet a friend. And I didn't know, I don't know, I, I didn't know, uh, places in Cairo very well, so I I called them up and said, okay, I'm gonna get a taxi and and get them to uh, 
uh, to, to your place. What, what, what do I tell them? I don't know how to describe to get to your place. So I said, oh, don't, don't do that. I'll just send you a Google pin location and just kind of put it on, download this app called Kareem and, and put it on there. And the guy will know where, how to take you. He'll just follow the map. I was like, what is this Kareem thing? He's like, just download it. It's like Uber, but it's better. I'm like, okay, sure. So I was on the train. I downloaded the app. And at that time, um, this was late 2014. And, um, and I had, um, I downloaded the app and then I was suddenly like, you know, taken aback by the user experience at the time. I was like, wow, I am going to be putting in my credit card or debit card on this app. They didn't have cash at that time. So you could only uh, pay with, with, a, with a debit card or credit card. And not only that, but the sign up process required you to put in a credit card to, in order to sign up. You couldn't just add the credit card later. Um, so the app look, uh, user experience looked so poor that I was afraid to put in my, my credit card because it was a, I, was, you know, I was living in the US, between the US and Egypt at that time, and I only had a US credit card. I'm like, I'm not putting in my US credit card on, on this because they don't even send you an SMS when someone, uh, when, when the card is used. So I could get robbed for, for a month and I'll discover it only at the end of the month. So I just didn't have the confidence. So I called them back. I was like, I'm not sure about this app. Let me just... Uh, I'll hand over the phone to the taxi driver whenever I get in one. You'll describe to him how to get to your place. And to be honest, it wasn't a very pleasant experience because the driver took a super long path and we ended up having to haggle on the price. But anyways, a couple months, uh, couple months later, I heard that Kareem had, had closed a $10 million round. And I was like, wow, this company, the one that I, the, the app looks so, so bad. And, and, and what, what was all about? What was this all about? So I was actually kind of... Um, I was actually kind of taken aback by they must be doing something right. So at that time, I re-downloaded back the app again. And being the, the, the hacker that I was, I just kind of basically, I decompiled the, their mobile app and started noticing that there was a couple of like open APIs that they hadn't closed. And I started sniffing APIs and I ended up kind of uh, figuring out how many users they had. Let's just call it that. And I was like, wow, this is a lot of users. They had a lot of trips and, 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 and so on. I was like, okay, so I'm, I'm sitting on a lot of information that I now know about the company that they don't think that they didn't know about at the time. And I just reached out to the founders. I just kind of got their emails and sent an e emails out to them. I was like, hey, guys, I, uh, I saw your company, Mabruk, on your fundraise. I, I really want to talk uh, about this. I think I can help you guys with building the product. And we'll discuss more. And and during the interview, they, you know, I, I actually told them. By the way, I, I decompiled your app, and here are all the open uh, security things that you have at that time. And I could see how many users you have. I could, uh, and so on. And we had a laugh about it later. But one of the things that I, I had to kind of work on in the beginning was just kind of discussing kind of how to close all these loopholes. But um, since then, you know, one of my first kind of tasks at Kareem was to kind of do a full UI UX revamp. And I think I joined in the summer of 2015, and the first version of their new mobile app uh, went live uh, in uh, beginning of 2016. So about six months after I joined, and it was a big project. And and uh, yeah, that's kind of how it started. It's a great story, um, and a lot of hustle. Um, can, can you paint a picture for me of Kareem when you first joined? I mean, how many people were there on the team? Um, and you know what the product organization was like and things like that just to imagine what it was like at the beginning yeah i mean kareem in 2015 i don't know exactly how many people were there at, 
uh, you know, during 2015. But uh, in product, uh, in product, we had about four people uh, in product. I think at that time, um, and we, the way we were organized, we we had, um, you know, we we reorged the product team multiple times since, but. Um, the the markets so we had the, the the core we had the kind of the 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 mountain peaks are all of the markets that are operating so Saudi was a market there was a mountain peak Egypt was a market peak Pakistan was a market mountain peak and then you had base camp so we kind of had this base camp versus mountain peak kind of uh, base camp being uh, serving the mountain peaks because they they're on the front lines kind of. Uh, conquering the market, so to speak, and, and, and getting our users. And we're out there in the, in, in the back, making sure that they have all what they need to, to, to conquer. Um, over the years, kind of Karim switched into a more business unit type structure, where as we expanded uh, from ride hailing being a single vertical company, we started having ride hailing and food, grocery, there was payments and so on. So we, we, we shifted into a business unit structure where, um, the uh, instead of having a functional org for engineering or product or, or 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 others, they were somewhat embedded into the the business units. I'm just going to call it the business unit structure. Um, there were a few teams, obviously, that were kind of still horizontal, like HR, legal, and others. But for the most part, the organization kind of ended up having their different uh, org structures, and there was a managing director for each of the business units over time. So the structure changed over time. Got it, and. Like w- when you have a product like that, you, you have so many moving parts. You have like uh, the driver acquisition and you have the, the ride hailing and the financial, of course, parts and the account management. And, you know, there are so many things, so many moving parts. So how do you align all these things so that they're serving uh, your goals as an organization? So I can imagine a situation where uh you give the driver acquisition team an objective to add drivers at a certain rate but this eventually results in bad user experience for you know and affects retention so they're they're achieving their objectives but uh in achieving them maybe the driver uh, quality is decreasing and so the company overall's objectives, even though it seemed like it would be achieved this way, wasn't. So how do you like align such a huge organization around uh, the, the organization's overall goals? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, this wasn't the, 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 the sole responsibility of product to do that, but it, it had a lot of teams to kind of really coordinate together to get it done. But one of the things that, that the product and data teams ended up um, kind of publishing internally at Kareem was we published something called the RTB framework and RTB stood for running the business RTB. And effectively what it was is really helping understand um, if you're running a two-sided marketplace, you're always balancing between supply and demand. And in this case, supply is your captains and uh, your demand is your, is your customers, the people who ride. Um, and if you, if you have, um, uh, your 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 demand team onboarding and signing up a lot of customers, then you get a surge of demand, and you know your captains are going to be happy because they're always being utilized and they're always, uh, you know, they're always in rides because there's a lot of demand. But then over time, the customer experience suffers because there's a shortage of drivers. There's a perceived shortage of drivers. The 
ETAs for how long it takes for the car to come are longer. And then, and then suddenly you end up churning these customers. And then if you do vice versa, you onboard a lot of captains on the platform. Uh, suddenly, you know, your ETAs are low. Cars are always available. Amazing customer experience. But then, you know, the utilization rate and the billable utilization rate of, of, your, of, your, of your captains is low. And then they're like, why would I work on this platform? I'm unable to earn a, a decent living. So it's this constant swing of a pendulum. And, and, and what really needs to happen is you need to kind of have a, a, a planning process between the supply teams and the demand teams, um, as well as trying to automate this as much as you can that you have a well-balanced machine that can grow in tandem supply and demand and give the right incentives and disincentives at the right time to make sure that they're growing at the same time. And, you know, one of the teams that we had was called the marketplace team and the marketplace team was building all of those balancing tools in real time to help you manage between how do you distribute your, uh, your, your captains across the city in the right time, uh, you know, uh, Peak, peak, uh, peak factors or surge, as it's called, you know, balancing, you know, you're, you're trying to inhibit uh, demand if it gets too hot so that you can kind of um, um, make sure you can manage the demand supply situation. Uh, also understanding if you are going to disappoint a user and not getting a car, there's, there's, a, there's, uh, there's a, a good way and a bad way to do it. The worst way to do it is to get the user to commit and you know, they're waiting for the car and then it ends up not showing up because it's taking forever or captain cancels. That's the worst way to do it. The best way to do it, if you're going to disappoint anyways, is to let them say, I don't want this because you're trying to increase your, you know, your peak factor, your surge, because you want to get more captains to jump on the platform because see, there's a lot of money you're going to make now because you're going to make 1.5 X of your earnings and whatnot as a, as a way to incentivize your supply to come online. And at the same time, potentially disincentivize some of your demand uh, to, 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 to book so that they end up reaching equilibrium again. So there's a lot of things that need to happen in real time uh, in order for this to happen. And, and that kind of made it a very challenging uh, planning process, really, uh, either on a monthly or quarterly planning between all of the finance teams and the mountain peaks to understand what is their growth strategy. If they invest too much on one side versus another, you end up getting a, dis uh, a mismanaged marketplace. And then also the tech teams and the product teams, what are you building to kind of help automate the balancing in real time on a granular basis, which is also very difficult to do and uh, requires a lot of investment in, in, in product and engineering to, to, to make that happen. Uh, yeah, in, in a I can imagine. <laughs> and, to, and to get everyone rowing, rowing in the same direction as well. Correct. Um, so you said this, when you were telling your story about how you joined Karim, you, you mentioned how you had to pay by credit card. And I think one of the biggest like unlocks and differentiators for Kareem at the beginning while they were competing with Uber was that for a while, Kareem actually accepted cash uh, while Uber didn't. And, and that, that drove a lot of like uh, growth versus the competition. Can you tell us about you know, where the insight came from and how you guys made the decision to, to allow cash payments? Yeah, I mean, the insight came from just reality. The reality is in, in, 20, in 2013 and 2014 and 2015 even, uh, you know, credit card penetration and, and, you know, still remains to be very, very low in the region. Um, and in Egypt, especially in places like Egypt, at that time, Saudi, the least 
and Pakistan for sure, and many other markets, cash was king. Um, and at that time, it was considered insane to think about doing uh, cash because, you know, if you have a trip, and let's just make the math easy, if this was a 100 EGP uh, trip, um, you know, the, cap the captain's uh, cut is 80 roughly, and we would get 20. Let's just call them uh, math easy. We take 20%. Um, you know, if you if you do 10 of these trips, then suddenly you have 200 EGP that is Karim's money that is sitting with 10 different captains and they're in different parts of the city. Now multiply that by thousands and thousands of rides a day, not just in Egypt, but in Saudi and in UAE and in Pakistan, you have millions of dollars of your own revenue that's sitting in, you know, thousands and thousands of captains' hands. So cash collection process becomes a nightmare, right? And it was considered insane at that time. How are you going to figure this out? And initially we were like, okay, we'll just launch it and see, is there demand for it? And we very quickly saw that there was a lot of demand for this and it was just an unlock. Now, obviously no brainer. We removed, even if you wanted to add a credit card, you, we didn't put it in the sign-up process. You can add it later just before you have a ride for markets that they didn't have uh, cash activated. But, but simple things like opening up cash um, just really just was, was such a no-brainer product market fit issue. And we spent most of our effort now figuring out how to do the cash collection. How do we manage, manage uh, cash balances owed by uh, captains to us and so on. And we had to kind of figure out uh, collection strategies either with cash collection points across the city or integrations with uh, with um, kind of um, the likes of Fauri and others across different parts of the city that we can um, get the captain to kind of go to the nearest grocery store and hand over the money and you know we we, we do the transfer with Fauri and, and so on so there's a there's a whole bunch of things that we then invested to solve uh, invested in in your product to solve the experience of making cash seamless uh, and and um, and, and, and we rode the wave for so long until kind of the rest of the market, um, including not just Uber in the region, but Ola in India and Grab and Southeast Asia and others started accepting cash because they saw that we it's somehow possible. It's very difficult, but it's possible right. for sure. Yeah. Um, and it's incredible that you made, they made the effort. You kind of paved the way for everyone. And, yeah, and we were the first to, to launch cash. Yeah. And it's always like complicated because there are like unintended consequences. So, for example, like sometimes drivers now, they, they want cash, of course, you know, in their hand and they're a bit uh, and it, it affects the customer experience where they're kind of annoyed with customers that pay by credit because they're not going to get the money sooner. And uh, even though probably on balance, they are from their cash transactions getting money uh from the credit but anyway yeah i mean it is like an interesting uh look into how the hard things sometimes are worth doing even if they're hard because they provide the, the real unlock and the real competitive advantage which is often the case absolutely. i guess absolutely uh, yeah. yeah so going like to your in the later stages, uh, maybe that was around the acquisition, you, you became the VP of the super app uh, platform uh, for Karim. Uh, can you tell us, I mean, what was your mission at the time? Was the super app already like started or did, did you start this project and how, you know, 
what was your mission from Mudassir? Yeah, so I think I think over time, you know, Karim, you know, when when Karim was embarking on the super app kind of transformation, um, Karim had already been a multi-vertical business. We were in ride-hailing, food, groceries, uh, payments, and others, and all of them were at different phases of of their maturity. But it, it was the question started becoming, you know, um, how can we leverage? How can we leverage? Um, you know, two things. We had the, the largest user base was in ride-hailing, which was obviously where we started. How can we leverage synergies between them, and how do we get more people to discover our other services that we're offering in a very seamless way? Right. So it was a, it was kind of that problem statement number one. Problem statement number two is how do you scale from there? There are going to be probably tens of use cases of daily services that you could use um, that are probably not going to be built by Karim, probably built by other amazing companies. So how do you provide a platform for them to access all of the Karim infrastructure and all of the Karim user base and offer them a great service, even if it's not a service that is operated by Karim? And that's kind of how the idea of the super app was kind of born and the strategy for it was kind of pushed from there. And I think one of the first missions that I had when I, when I, when I led that, that, that domain was basically how would the user experience of the super app look like in a way that is seamless. And it was just kind of the starting point for further things to be built upon it. And I think one of, one of the things that we were trying to solve was discovery. A lot of people, we noticed that a lot of our users were users of ride-hailing, but had not known necessarily about our food services app, even though food was growing very quickly. But still, we had millions of users in ride-hailing, and we had way less in, in food, and many of them had not. And then we started looking at very interesting other metrics, like, you know, we started coming up with our own terminology, but like multi-service users. A multi-service user is a person who used more than one service. And we started noticing that their retention rates were a lot higher. Their stickiness was a lot higher. And, and we noticed that you know, when we do have a proper compelling uh, ecosystem uh, kind of synergies and discovery between them, people kind of remain within that ecosystem. And they end up giving you more share of their wallet on other services they're using because all of your, um, your, your, your assets are in one place. And the key assets are your payment methods. Your you don't have to add your addresses every single time. You just kind of have a unified kind of expectation of quality uh, quality of service, like you're going to get from any complaints that you get because it's unified. There's a whole bunch of things that, if unified properly and you're doing them well, users are going to just say, you know what, I don't want to re-sign up again and again. That was kind of the core thesis, and they know that as time progresses, they're going to be more and more useful everyday services that I can I can consume and we started from there and and um, you know we, we launched uh, the first version of it and you know since I left the you know Karim have been iterating on that uh, continuously and you know there's a lot more services available on Karim today especially in, in a market like UAE um, compared to when I uh, when I uh, was there Yeah, and and of course, recently they they made the spin out of the super app with E, e and uh, 
becoming a majority shareholder with uh, with Uber. And uh, it'll be interesting to see because it's kind of like the holy grail that that everyone is trying to to reach the super app, uh, like the WeChat of the region. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out uh, and hopefully to take part in it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm cheering for Karim on the, on the side always. Once a Karim, <laughs> always a Karim, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, and the Karim Mafia, as they call it, you know, is doing a, you know, a great impact on the ecosystem in general. All the Karim like yes. alumni. Yeah. Uh, so maybe last thing about Karim. I mean, when you're hiring product managers, uh, what do you look for? Because especially at the outset, there weren't. I mean, it wasn't as uh, common a job. Um, so what do you look for in product managers? What do you think are the most important traits they have? Yeah, I think you know the most important thing. So so there are two types of kind of product managers you can get there. So if you're looking at um, if you're looking at product managers in sectors that are very well understood, like e-commerce and whatnot, these are people who've honed in their skills for so long. And, and, and you know, there's, there's a kind of a playbook of what does a good product manager look like for the e-commerce space, right? When you're doing something like ride hailing uh, and whatnot, at that time, it was still very early. And there was a lot of problems that we were still trying to discover. And to a great extent, I was, uh, I was, uh, hiring people that I felt had very core uh, problem-solving skills intrinsically. So I was hiring for intrinsics. Um, if you showed me that you were able to uh, problem-solve something from a first principles point of view, um, showed me a huge amount of user empathy on understanding what the user would want, even if it's a hypothesis that you, this sounds plausible, how would you go about figuring this out? really understanding how this ride-hailing industry works, come up with good hypotheses about, the, about that, about the uh, managing of your marketplace and whatnot. So all of these core kind of intrinsics, um, I think this is kind of how I decided to hire people. Um, and and I, I, I focused a lot less on them necessarily knowing anything about the domain of ride-hailing because there wasn't many companies out there. It was just Uber, Lyft, us, and a few others in every market. And still, all of us were still figuring out what how this industry really, really worked. Um, mm -hmm. So, so that's kind of how I was uh, kind of uh, prioritizing my hiring. Really, people who exhibited these uh, these qualities. Got it. Okay, so moving on to a different tack from the your Kareem life. I mean, you're someone who's studied in Canada. You worked in Silicon Valley. Uh, you worked in Egypt, uh, Egyptian Canadian. You lived in the UAE. You uh, you work in a Saudi fund that invests all over the region. So I mean, you've kind of experienced a lot of different uh, aspects of the global ecosystem. How do you think our region is different? I mean, how do you see it differently from, say, the Silicon Valley region? What's different? I mean, we're, we're, we're at a very different stage in the life cycle. The region here is still very early. I remember when I was trying to raise money for my first startup in 2010, it was very, very hard to raise money. Uh, raising tens of thousands of dollars was a feat, especially in Egypt. Um, I think we're just at a very different stage of the ecosystem. The ecosystem didn't have a lot of local VCs. 
Now, alhamdulillah, there's a lot more. There, we're, we have tens of VCs in the region. Um, even the, the mentality of how the VCs operated was evolving. The founders' maturity levels were uh, are evolving. We're seeing very, very mature founders today than than what was there in the early two, like in 2010 or 2005. So, it, it, you know, I think we're just at a different stage. You know, the the, the Silicon Valley startup ecosystem uh, has has a, about a 50 to 60 year head start uh, to the one in the region, which is fine. Uh, but I think the region is accelerating at a pace that's much faster because of, uh, I think, the internet kind of accelerated learnings. You know, lots of availability of media and 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 learning material, um, cross, you know, cross pollination of experiences from people. Um, a lot of very strong intervention, uh, positive intervention by uh, governments and regulators in the region that are really trying to catch up. And, and push forward the local ecosystem, be it in UAE, Egypt, or Saudi. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, positive changes that are, I think, accelerating much faster. Uh, and uh, you know, we're closing the gap, but we're still, you know, uh, far away. But the, the the trajectory for the region is is really really uh, positive and uh, keeping me optimistic. Great. Now I wanted to ask you. I mean, what do you think? From the founder point of view, what should they be looking for in a venture capitalist that invests in their company? Yeah, I think you're looking for someone that can actually be there, uh, you know, be there with you, and and uh, through through the, the the good times and the bad times. Uh, a lot of times, whenever founders go through a bad time, I hear from a lot of them that they're they're the investors that they invested in. They're just basically uh, don't reach out as much and, and whatnot because you know, maybe in their minds they've written them off or they're starting to get doubtful. But I think just being available throughout is, is important. You are definitely going to go through tough times and, and therefore you want someone who's, who's actually willing to, to, to come in and, and, and help. You're also looking for people who are able to do a lot of more introductions to you to either uh, key players in your industry that are... Um, uh, that, that are important for you to kind of get connected to or connect you with the right talent. A lot of times founders are looking to hire uh, critical talent in the very beginning, especially in the seed stage, and helping them with that. So there's a whole bunch of things that, uh, that you know, good VCs can do that make a difference with founders. But I think the key thing is, I would say, is just being available um, whenever the founder ne- needs it. And sometimes it's as simple as the founder is ridiculously stressed and just like, you know, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, burnt out, and you need to be able to just just have a heart to heart human conversation with them, uh, and that you know you empathize and you've gone through it as well, so you kind of know what they're feeling. I think it makes a huge difference with with founders as well. Yep, I agree. Uh, sometimes you just need a shoulder to cry on, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, and what do you think are like the most promising industries or markets uh, like uh, to be targeted by by founders in the region what do you think people should be looking at I think fintech is is a big one um, I think there's there's a lot of um, b2b fintech or infrastructure fintech that is yet to be uh, built for the region and has a lot of potential especially with the new behavior of the new generations of the youngsters out there, um, the, the, 
you know, so I think there's definitely, that's a big sector. I think um, uh, in general, we're more excited. We're, we're excited to see uh, SaaS companies come out of the region, especially SaaS companies that are building global SaaS products for the world um, uh, out of the region. There's, there's only very few um, that, that do that here. But um, we think that there's sufficiently good tech talent in the region that can build world-class products. And I think they just need to kind of, uh, uh, we need to see more of them being funded because I think this is, this is exciting. Obviously, there could be SaaS products that are targeting local markets, which we're also very excited about. But I think uh, we're excited to see kind of the region graduating to the next phase where they're building global products launching from the region or from the headquarters here and, and, and maybe even hiring talent globally. Absolutely. Uh, more for that. And uh, maybe we can now switch, you know, this is a good point to stop and, and go into the quick fire round where I ask you quick questions and you just give me quick replies and uh, wrap up the okay. interview. All right. So um, what book do you like to recommend to others? What book do I like to recommend others? Um, I think uh, f- thinking fast and slow, although that was a very slow thing from my side, but thinking fast and slow. <laughs> well, that's, that's okay. You know, uh, you, you also need to think slow, right? For some things as, uh, as yeah. he says in the book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So what's the latest invested investment you've made and why are you excited to do it? So coincidentally, just yesterday, one of uh, we had a, a fund, uh, an announcement by a company called Zealpay. Um, yep. This is an Egyptian founder, Omar Abed, working on uh, uh, an analytics uh, data solution for uh, POS terminals, uh, and it's a SaaS company uh, by Egyptian team going for a global uh, play, right? Which is amazing. As we were just saying, <laughs> as we were just right. saying, <laughs> you know, um, we're very excited about them. They're um, they're they're phenomenal team, and uh, they really have built something here from the region, and and really in the process of signing up and closing kind of global players in the uh, payment acquisition space, which is which is amazing to see. Nice. All right. So, uh, who do you think sh- we should have as a guest on the podcast? I think you should, uh, you should uh, get uh, Mudasser if you can. Okay. Oh, I'd love to get Mudasser. Maybe we'll have a talk about that later. Okay. So, uh, what question should I have asked you that I, that I didn't? These are not quick fire questions. This is a ah. deep question. You, you don't have <laughs> to, to answer dig it. Dig deep into my insecurities <laughs> and see what question <laughs> you should have asked me. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I think maybe there's a question that you could have asked about what I'm most scared about for the region. What are the things that worry me that worried me the most? But I'm not going to okay. answer it now that you've you've. Uh, you've All right, that's for me. our next episode. <laughs> All right, so I like to close on a note of gratitude, well, uh, and uh, ask you this question of what is a gift someone has given you that has made a positive impact on your life? A gift. Yeah, it doesn't have to be like a material gift, but yeah, I think uh, I think uh, I'm 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 very um, it touches me when I see people genuinely trying to help others, uh, and uh, 
I've, I've come across people in my life that I felt that whenever I needed something, they were always willing to give and always uh, generous with their, with their advice and their time. And they were very genuinely honest. I think the biggest gift that someone has given me was just the ability to kind of give me honest advice and, and do it with, with care and empathy. Um, uh, and I think uh, that's probably the most valuable because I felt that it has the most impact in my ability to grow as a person and to think uh, about things that I uh, should have changed my opinions on or need to look at them in a different way. Interesting. Uh, it's interesting because uh, this is the second episode in a row where someone gives this type of uh, gift and it is a gift to to get real feedback with empathy thank you very much for the gift of your time uh well and uh hope to have you on soon so i can ask you about what scares you the most about the region <laughs> definitely thank you Absolutely. for having me thank you well thank you for listening to this episode of startups arabia podcast If there was something you really liked about what the guests said today, reach out to them on social media and tell them what you liked. And of course, if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? You don't want to miss any of our great upcoming episodes. Also, please rate us and give us comments on our social media accounts so that we know how to improve. And also tell us what you like. We don't mind hearing that either. Until next time, this was your host, Ali Zweil.